open with me to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you. And will eat at your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasure in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and luxury, you have fattened your hearts. As in a day of slaughter, you have condemned, you have murdered the just. He does not resist you. Please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to worship you corporately, even as we hear your word. Father, we have a sobering text before us. We ask that you would humble us, help us to receive your word with joy and gladness. Help us to be warned by, by what we see in this text. And Father, we do ask that if any here don't know you, that they would come to know you this very night. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are told that the, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And we get a living picture of that here in our text today. Now, this section is related to the previous verses and that our views of wealth and, and money should reflect the will of God. If we remember, we were talking about the, these people who live as though there is no God. Moo points out that both paragraphs condemn a pursuit of wealth that fails to take into account the reality of God and, and his will for humanity. God wills that mankind uses wealth and resources in a certain way. And there's a consequence for, for not doing so. So let us first look at the warning of severe judgment. James says, come now, you rich. Now, who is James addressing here? He, he's not just condemning the rich. He, he's condemning the rich who are using their wealth and influence for evil. It is not a sin to be wealthy. In fact, if you read scriptures, God often blessed people with wealth. But in context here, James is, is likely referring to, to rich landowners who were using their wealth and power to sin against God in several ways. 
Now the question is, are these rich landowners Christians? In this epistle, James often confronts Christians who are living in sin, but, but some commentators believe that James is not doing this right here. For example, Calvin says, They are mistaken, as I think, who consider that James here exhorts the rich to repentance. It seems to me to be a simple denunciation of God's judgment, by which he meant to terrify them without giving them any hope of pardon. For all that he says tends only to despair. He therefore does not address them in order to invite them to repentance. And Douglas Moo, picking up on this same theme, says, James' style is that of the prophets pronouncing doom on pagan nations. He unrelievedly attacks these people with no hint of exhortation. So James is not telling these, these wicked, rich men to repent as he calls believers to, to repentance in chapter 4, as we saw, but rather he only speaks of the coming judgment for their wickedness. Now we can say that the hope of, 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 of anyone hearing of the coming judgment would be that they would repent and turn to Christ. But the point here is that James is not necessarily writing to correct the behavior of believers as he's done in previous verses. So then why is he writing this? Calvin says he has a regard to the faithful. So he's writing this for the, the benefit of the Christian, that they, hearing of the miserable end of the rich, might not envy their fortune. And also that knowing that God would be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. These wicked men... These rich men, as we will see, are doing some abominable things with their resources. Much injustice taking place. And, and we can think of this in our own lives. Have you ever dealt with CPS, for example? You, you ever dealt with a medical system that, that, that performs injustice and, and, and you feel like this little helpless ant in a system of injustice? Does God notice that? How should we respond to that as Christians? See, it may be the case that, that some who fit under the description of rich landowner would have been in James' original audience here, but, but more than likely James is simply writing to believers for two reasons. As Calvin mentioned, one, that we would not envy the rich who James is describing. It is easy for those who have been poor and oppressed to desire to become like the ones who have oppressed them. Oh, if I could just get the resources they had, then I could do what they've done. And, and sometimes we learn this, right? You, 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 you hear the top manager of a company say, you know, if, if something goes wrong, I can always put the blame on another. And then you can, by default, begin to desire that type of power where you're, you're touchless in the workplace. You can just put the blame on another person to get out of trouble. And so we desire this, 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 these riches and this wealth, this power, in order to, to take advantage of others as we have been taken advantage of. And what James wants them to know is, when you see the misery that is coming upon these men, you have no reason to envy what they have. And secondly, that we may understand that God will avenge the righteous. 
Calvin said, knowing that that God will be the avenger of the wrongs they suffered, they might with a calm and resigned mind bear them. We can think again of the great injustices that happen. And and if you've ever been a, a victim of that, it makes you want to rage. It makes you want to to take justice into your own hands. James says we can take comfort that God God will punish these wicked men who use their wealth and power to harm others and do evil. Again, sometimes powerful men do things so wicked that in our hearts we want vigilante justice. But James says justice is coming. Don't don't be an atheist in your your thinking concerning judgment. You see, the atheist who cares about justice says, if justice is not served right here and right now, it never will be. And so many unbelievers are, are, are willing to condemn a man and find him guilty even if they are not totally sure that he is. Why? Because if they let him go and by some chance he was guilty, they believe justice will never, ever be served. It's either here and now or never. And this thinking often makes them more willing to to punish a possibly guilty man, a possibly guilty innocent man, than they are to possibly let a guilty man go free. And so you hear that. It'd be better that this man be, be punished wrongly than that he was actually guilty and he gets off. Why? Because they don't recognize that ultimately God will punish every wicked deed. As believers, we desire justice and we work to establish justice, but ultimately we can live with internal peace and joy, understanding that there is no injustice in this world that will go unpunished. Every wicked deed of every wicked person was either paid for by Christ or will be paid for in judgment. So that, as Calvin said, this allows us to bear injustice with a calm and resigned mind. And thirdly, James is writing this so that when we find ourselves in positions of wealth and power, we use those things to honor God. All wealth and all authority comes from God, and he expects us to use these things in a way that brings him glory. So when we see the sins of the rich that James is pointing out, it is instruction for us to know how we ought to behave as believers. So we know who James is addressing and why, but what does he tell these wicked people to do? He says, come now, you rich, weep and howl. Come now can be translated as now listen or listen up, pay attention. In other words, he has something very important to say. He says, listen up, you rich, weep and howl. Weep can be defined as to cry freely and profusely from sadness or distress. And this was used in chapter 4 to, to, to speak of sinners needing to weep over their sins. And then the word how can be defined, could be rather translated as to well. And this describes loud and long 
cries. MacArthur says, says this word refers to shrieking or screaming. He goes on to say that, that taken together, weep and howl picture an intense outburst of despairing, violent, uncontrollable grief. He's painting a serious picture here. The picture here I think of is a mom. She sees her five-year-old boy upside down in the swimming pool, his feet caught in the ladder. And she, she calls 911, and they, they, they rush him to the hospital, and, and they're in the trauma room trying to resuscitate. But eventually the doctors realize this boy is gone. And so they, the doctor comes out of the trauma room, and he, and he tells the mom to sit down. And he says to her, there's nothing more we can do. And she screams at the top of her lungs and wells and weeps. And, and this is what, what James is saying here. To, to, to scream at the top of your lungs and weep all at the same time. But, but James, these, these men are rich. They're wealthy. They have power. They have influence. What need do they have to be screaming at the top of their lungs and wailing and weeping? He says, for the miseries that are coming upon you. In other words, the misery they will face in God's judgment is so severe that weeping and wailing is an appropriate response. Such is the severity of God's wrath. He's saying if, if the wicked knew the wrath that they were heading towards, the appropriate response would be to weep and to scream at the top of your lungs for the horror they would face. If you don't believe this, look at what happened to Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. What happened there? He's wrestling, wrestling with the, with, with the thought of taking in the cup of God's wrath and drinking it down. He's wrestling with that. If there's some other way, Father, if there's some other way, I love what Edward says. He's, he says it's as though God the Father took Christ the Son and he took him to the very edge of hell and said, this, my son, is what you must drink if you want to pay for their sins. And you can think of this, that, that God, that, 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 that Christ is God. So, so from the foundation of the world, he understood what it would take to redeem his people. But something is different now. He's not just God anymore. He's fully God and fully man. So, so what happens when, when this God who is fully man is shown the wrath that he would drink down? His body can't even handle it. And he's thrown on his face in a garden. And we know it's a cold night because later on Peter warms himself by the fire, but, 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 but Christ is on the ground sweating. And not just sweating, but he, he's sweating drops of blood. His body is starting to malfunction. 
at the thought of drinking down the wrath of God. He's in agony. So much so that the Father sends an angel to minister to him. Some would say, lest he die prematurely. Christ was a man's man. Not what, we would call, not what we would call a sissified man. He was a man's man. And yet, when he wrestles with the thought of drinking down the wrath of God, he's on his face, sweating drops of blood. Dear friend, the thought of, and sight of having to endure this wrath should cause the wicked to, to scream and to wail and to weep over the miseries they are heading towards. And this is what James is saying. This is what James is calling these people to, to recognize the severity of the judgment and misery coming upon them and to respond appropriately. But what were their sins? But they do so bad that such severe judgment is coming upon them. Well, four things. First of all, it's poor stewardship of resources. And that sounds crazy to some of us. They, they didn't use their resources the right way? And they get this type of judgment? Yes, they do. First, he talks about wealth. Verse 2. Your, your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Now, riches is a general term for wealth, and, and the context leads us to believe that, that he is thinking about things that can rot, most likely food. So meat and, and grains and fruit. And instead of giving these things to, to those who could use them, they, they heap them up and, and, and pile them up so much so that they simply rot. Here are people who have so much abundance, they have more than they could ever consume. And rather than to, to share with another, their heart is so greedy that they would let it rot. It's like a little child. I don't want that, but you can't have it either. It's my toy. Are you playing with it? No, but it's mine. Nobody can have it. And then he talks about their garments. He says, and your garments are moth-eaten. And the word garment is used to speak of, of fine clothing, expensive clothing. So once again, instead of giving to those in need, the, these people have fine clothing, so much so that it's simply stored up, being eaten by moths. And dear friends, they would rather feed moths than help those in need. And then he mentions gold and silver. Verse 3, your, your gold and silver have corroded. And corroded literally means to rust. And I think James uses this in a general sense of decay. The point is that their, their gold and silver is sitting around, going to waste, not being used. Well, this is not to say that saving money is wrong. In fact, it is good to save money. But, but there's a difference between saving and hoarding. Someone... Once asked Rockefeller, how much money is enough? The richest man in the world. And he says, a little more. This, this is that sort of mentality. You just need a little more stored up. 
God gives us resources. He tells us to work. But is it simply to store up? What does Paul say in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28? Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. Why? That he may have something to give to him who is in need. And he leaves it at that. Work hard, men. Why? So you can give to those in need. And once again, it's good to save money and even to leave an inheritance for our children and our children's children. That's not the point. But God expects us to be generous, to use our resources, to care for others, to care for the poor, to care for brothers and sisters in Christ, to care for orphans and widows, to spread the gospel, to plant churches, to build up churches, to support missions and evangelism, to make disciples. God doesn't give us resources just to make our bank accounts look good, even as a church. Calvin said that God has not appointed gold for rust nor garments for moths. But on the contrary, he has designed them as aids and helps to human life. How bad is this? All this stuff that's just decaying and rusting, being moth-eaten and rotting away. James says... Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. What what is he saying? When these wicked men stand before God in judgment, God is on his throne. And the wicked is being prosecuted. And God says, is there any evidence of his wickedness? And James says God is going to bring in those, that wealth that is, that is rotten and those, those coins that are rusty and those garments that are moth-eaten and say, see, here is proof of this man's wickedness. He had this abundance and helped no one. He, he let it go to waste instead of helping those in need. God, you being the one who gives all good gifts, gave these things to him for the good of others, but he used them to simply store up and help no one in need. He says this is evidence against you. Their sinful hoarding of wealth and refusal to share with others is evidence of their unregenerate hearts and will be evidence used by God to damn them, is what James is saying. And not just that. He says in their, in their corrosion will be evidence against them and also will eat your flesh like fire. He's personifying this. Here he is depicting hell, physical torment. Fire will eat your flesh. That's physical. And he goes on to say, you have laid up treasure in the last days. In other words, they have no thought to coming judgment. They're concerned with storing up more treasure with no thought of the coming judgment of God. This is like the man in the parable who built bigger barns so that he could sit back and relax and eat and drink and be merry for years to come. And God says, you fool. Tonight, your soul is required of you which James says means you're going to give an account for everything in that barn. So this is the first sin. Not being a good steward of the the resources that God had given them. 
But secondly, accumulating wealth by unjust means. Verse 4, he says, Behold, the, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the heirs of the Lord of hosts. Not only were these men hoarding wealth and refusing to be generous, but they were actually gaining wealth by sinful means, starving the very men of their wages who they're refusing to be generous to. They were stealing from those they had hired to work. They they hired men, probably poor men, to to mow their fields. And to mow means to cut grass with a blade. When that also includes things like wheat and barley. These are reapers. And so these men promised to pay these men to work for them. but, But after the work was complete, they refused to pay. What's so bad with that? You got more profit. Free labor. The problem is God has a problem with that. And how do we know that that God has a problem with that? We need to go back to the Old Testament. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until morning. Pay your people. Deuteronomy 24. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land with your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets. For he is poor and he counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you'll be guilty of sin. That'd be terrible, right, to live under Old Testament law where people actually had to pay you when you worked. No, but you see the graciousness of God, don't we? And people talk about this vengeful God of the Old Testament and all of his, his strict and hard laws, but, but we see here that his law was designed to do what? To promote justice. That we would know what justice is. And to protect the poor. God says you, you, you won't take advantage of him. He's just a, a powerless laborer. But you will not take advantage of him. You will keep your word and you will pay him. And, and if this man is poor, you will pay him before the sun goes down. How serious was this? Serious enough for a curse to be pronounced upon people in Jeremiah 22. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteousness and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for nothing and does not give him his wages. And, and if you really want to know how, how sinful this is in God's eyes, we, we turn to Malachi chapter 3, verse 5, and this is what we read there. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Why is God drawing near to them in judgment? I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages. Wait a minute. 
He's comparing this to sorcery and adultery. It's just as bad. He, he lumps it all together. I, I, my judgment is coming upon you for sorcery, for adultery, for oppressing widows and orphans, for, for, for not fearing me, and also for not paying your employees their wages. These men are so wicked. They're taking advantage by stealing labor, saying, I will pay you, and not keeping their word. Listen to what Calvin says. For if a humane and just man, as Solomon says in Proverbs, regards the life of his beast, it is a monstrous barbarity when man feels no pity towards the man whose sweat he has employed for his own benefit. If the just man has regard to his beast, how much more should he have towards the man whose sweat and blood went into building what he was doing? What does Calvin have to say about these men? He says, they think that the rest of mankind live only for their benefit alone. That's what he's saying. When I do that to a person, I'm essentially saying, your only existence is to serve me, so you don't need to get paid for it. But James pronounces judgment on these men. He says, Behold, the wages and the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the heirs of the Lord of hosts. But by the way, notice the similarity here between what God said he would do in Leviticus and what he's actually doing in James our Deuteronomy, actually. You shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. Why? Lest he cry against you to the Lord. And what's happening here in James? The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have, have reached the heirs of the Lord of hosts. And in Malachi, what, what was the name that God used to speak of the judgment for doing this? The Lord of hosts. And then here in James, it is the Lord of hosts who has heard. The Lord of the armies of heaven. As I said in other sermons, that, that should send shivers down our spine when we hear that used in a threatening way. Because once again, it was the Lord of hosts who took a small shepherd boy and slayed a giant. And David said, you come before me with sword and shield, but I come to you in the name of Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And it is this same Lord of hosts who has heard the cries of the poor. MacArthur says a frightening judgment awaits those who unjustly hoard the wealth they rob from the poor. Their victims will cry out for justice to the righteous judge, and he will not disappoint. And so what was their third sin? Spending on self-indulgence. Verse 5. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. 
Not only do these men hoard wealth, refuse to give to those in need, steal from the poor by withholding wages, but they also live luxurious, self-indulgent lifestyles. The idea is that these men have given themselves over to self-indulgence. If you want a picture of this, you can go to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. What does Solomon say? Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure. That's what these men are doing. Full on pursuit of self-indulgence. All for what? Listen, before you envy these men who have the ability to do that, See an ad on YouTube about this man who doesn't do any work, but he gets millions of dollars, and you can have the houses and the, the cars that he has and all these other things, and, and, and we're tempted to envy that person. Look at all the things he's buying. Look at all this wealth he's storing up. Look at, look at his lifestyle. He's gaining all of these things. What, what is it going to profit him? Listen to what James says. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. He's comparing them to fattened calves. Why do you fatten a calf? To slaughter it. These men have fattened themselves with earthly riches only to be slaughtered in judgment. They're like fattened calves. These cows, life is wonderful. I walk around and I eat grass and grain and this is all I do. Oblivious to the fact that they're being fattened to be slaughtered. And so it is with these rich men. They are accumulating all of this, this wealth and, and living in all of this luxury and pleasure, not understanding that, that, that they're simply like cattle who are going to be slaughtered in God's judgment. MacArthur says James warns of a, of a coming day of slaughter, a frightening picture of judgment. In vivid language, he depicts the self-indulgent hoarders as fattened calves headed to the slaughterhouse of divine justice. Don't envy these men. They may be living their best life now, but they're simply being fed, fed grain so that they fatten up faster to be slaughtered. Don't envy what they have. And fourthly, they condemn the righteous. Verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I think here James is pointing to the rich using their, their influence and power to, to pervert justice and get the poor righteous falsely convicted or condemned in court. Oh, imagine that today. Big company, and I'm not against big companies, but, but a, a big, powerful company or a big, powerful person, and they wrong you, this little person, and they say, what do they say? Take me to court, I dare you. Watch what I do. My lawyers will eat you alive. That's what's happening here. And, and James says, you have done this to the righteous person. Here's a morally upright person. This is a Christian. 
These men are using their, their influence and power to pervert justice, to get the, the poor believers falsely condemned. And, and perhaps this has led to actual murder. He says, you've murdered the righteous person. But perhaps they've gone so far as to have these people murdered in order to preserve their lifestyle. But murder could also be James' way of describing the results of withholding wages and refusing charity. One writing put it this way. To take away a neighbor's living is to murder him. To deprive an employee of his wages is to shed blood. And I would say to shed his blood, his wife's blood, and his children's blood. This is how serious of a matter this is in God's eyes. They are murdering righteous men. Who, by the way, James says, they don't resist you. He does not resist you. In other words, he hasn't even fought you. And you're doing this to him. He's a righteous man who has not even opposed you, has not gone against you, and you're still doing this. Well, let us look at a few points of application here. As I've already said, after hearing the judgment coming upon these wicked, rich men, why should we envy them? Their misery will be so great that the appropriate response is wailing and weeping. The fires of hell will consume their flesh, we are told. They are like fattened calves simply going to the slaughter. What is there to envy about that? Difference, their wealth and power on earth is not worth an ounce of the judgment they're going to receive, not an ounce of it. And secondly, how careful should we be with both our wealth and our possessions? James describes very severe judgment that was coming upon these men, and it all had to do with, with the way they utilized and gained resources. This should cause us to search the scriptures and say, Lord, how should I be spending what you've given me? How should I be pursuing more? God cares deeply about these things. Because again, God has not given us these things simply for our pleasure. And that's not to say we, we can't spend money on things that give us pleasure, but, but that's not the extent of it. And thirdly, and I just love this. God notices injustice. He, he notices the, the, the poor man being robbed of wages, working in a field in the middle of nowhere. That this person feels so small and powerless and insignificant is noticed by God. He's noticed. God sees the injustice done to such a person, and, and the Lord of hosts will avenge him. Let, let this comfort us and, and ease us as we suffer injustices. God sees each and every one of them and will avenge. 
We think of ourselves, again, as little ants in a, in a, in a big system that, that takes advantage of us, and we say, there's no hope. But God sees every injustice. But now let me turn this around. Let this also be a warning to us, lest we take advantage of others and use them. God sees every single injustice that we commit. Move the boundary stone of the, of the widow one inch. And the God who is the, the defender of, of orphans and widows will notice. What do we say? We should live quorum Deo. As before the face of God, he, he sees all. We should think about this. Lest we defraud another. Lest we can gain a little more profit by taking advantage of this person, by cheating this person. Maybe even by, by half doing what we said we would do because it looks good enough. We ought to be careful because God sees all. But fourthly and finally, <clears throat> let us consider the temptation that comes with riches. Wealth can be a great blessing. But as Thomas Watson says, sometimes God gives a man the riches to weigh him down to hell. We're warned about this in the parable of the sower. Matthew 13, 22. Now he who receives seed among the thorns is he who hears the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. Here's a man who responded to the gospel positively. Oh, what joy the, the Lord has paid for my sins. My, my sins are gone. They are no more. And then... There's just little seed of, of weed that, that comes up and this weed just grows and it, and it gets larger and larger and this person finds himself being deceived more and more by riches. And eventually that weed grows so strong that it grabs the faith by the neck. And they turn from their faith because of the, the, the deceptiveness of riches. And again, not that this person was ever truly saved. This is not saying they lost their salvation. It's saying he was never truly a Christian. And what prevents him here? Love of money. Love of the world. There, there are some who, again, respond to the gospel this way, but, but then there are, there are others who, who simply will never follow Christ. Not, not even for a while. Because of the love of riches. Where do we see this in Scripture? Jesus had an interaction with a young, rich ruler. A young man who says, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He, he's thinking of eternity. He's thinking of eternity. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus tells them what to do. Sell everything you have. 
Jesus was getting at the idols to retire, wasn't he? Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. You want eternal life, right? This is what you do. But what is the response of this young man? When the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful. For he had great possessions. This man just willingly put his earthly possessions before eternal life. He was the one asking, how do I inherit eternal life? And he's told how. And he says, my possessions are more important to me. Did you see how riches can often be a problem? But how does Jesus respond to that? Assuredly, I say to you, that it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And when his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? Now the disciples, because of their their flawed understanding, thought the rich were the most likely to get into the kingdom of heaven. So, So Jesus rocks their understanding of the kingdom. But if it is difficult for the rich to get in, how how can anyone else be saved? Is what they're thinking. But Jesus just tells them all together, rich, poor, doesn't matter. With men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Listen, maybe you have been rejecting Christ, refusing to trust and follow him because of your love for riches and other things. These things are so shiny and luring to you. Maybe your heart is so drawn to those things that you feel as though it is impossible to let those sinful desires go. Maybe on one hand you want to follow Christ, and on the other hand you're consciously aware that there is this love for the world, this love for wealth that is pulling me away from Christ. What do I do? It's impossible for me to turn away from this. It's impossible for me to deny that temptation. It's so strong and my flesh is so weak. Yes, says Christ, it's impossible with men. But with God, all things are possible. God can remove those weeds out of your heart. Dear friend, if you don't know Christ today and feel this tension in your heart, This love for wealth, drawing your affections away from Christ. I I plead with you to, to run to Christ, run to God in prayer, and ask Him to change your heart, to remove those idols, to take away your love for the world and your love for Him, your love for riches, and give you a love for Him. And what you are unable to accomplish on your own, God is able to do in one moment. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, dear friends, and you will be saved. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that on your, because of your own will, and in your own power and strength, you removed us out of darkness into the light. 
and, and have allowed us to escape the, the dreadful wrath that we have seen in this text. But, oh God, we know that many, maybe some here today, but many in this city, many in, many in this country, many in this world are still underneath that wrath and will soon have to drink down that cup. Oh God, would you save them? Would you give us a heart to see them saved, a heart to evangelize them, to take this remedy to them? And Father, we do thank you for every resource you have given us as individuals here and every resource you've given us as a church. And, and we ask that you would help us to be faithful with these things. Make us kingdom-minded. Make us generous. To be good stewards of all that you've given us. That when we stand before you in judgment, we would hear, well done, good and faithful servants. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.